All right, let's jump into the message today. We have been in a series entitled, But First God. Have you enjoyed the series so far, church? Awesome, awesome. I, I uh, appreciate that. I'm, I'm glad because we want to bring things that help you, and I've heard a lot of good feedback on this one. So, um, and we are week three today. I'm excited about this message. Uh, but, but the series really is all about first, and what you do first really matters. This is a season where you're making your resolutions and you're forming new habits. You're two weeks in. Church, tell me, how are you doing on your resolutions? Have you broken your resolutions yet? Yes. Okay. A resounding yes. All right. Well, I love, I mean, we have good intentions, right? We want to form some new resolutions, some new habits for our, our, our maybe our eating or our body or whatever kind of habits you have. Uh, and, and you want to have a great 2023. And I'm encouraging you as you form these new habits, don't just focus on the physical habits, but also focus on your spiritual habits. Don't just, don't just talk about your body and think about your body, but think about your soul as well. So I say as we kick off this year, as we're in January, this can be the best year of your life. And one thing I've been saying each week is this can be the best year of your life. I know that's why you're forming spiritual habits because you want this to be a great year. But it's going to be the best year of your life if it's the best year of your life spiritually. So we got to put into place some spiritual habits. And my job and my goal as a pastor is to bring some focus to these spiritual areas of your life. So as we kick off this year, we say, but first, God, before we do anything else, above anything else that we do, God, we put you first. And we want to create some habits in our life to make sure that you are first. So kind of a, a, a model for your life, two good ways you can put God first in your life is first, what we're doing right now is through prayer and fasting. We kick off the year every year through 21 days of prayer and fasting. It's encouraging you to participate in that. But, but really, it, to, to be a believer, to be a follower of Jesus, to, to put God first, it's not just by putting him first for 21 days. It, it is by putting him first every single day. Not just talking to him for the first 24, 21 days of the year and say, I'll see you next year. But instead, by talking to him all year long. And even in fasting, to, to pick up this, this spiritual discipline of fasting and to incorporate it into your year. Maybe you don't want to do it every day, but maybe when you're going through a hard decision, you're going to seek God. I remember so many times I'd call Pastor Dustin and say, man, what are we going to do about this? And he'd say, well, we're going to seek God. We're going to fast and pray. I mean, that's, that's just been our, our answer. I, I don't know. We can strategically come up with something, but first thing we're going to do, we're going to seek God. We're going to fast and pray. That's been our response. I encourage you, make that your habit throughout your year. But we're starting this year off, 21 days of doing this. And the other, the other way you can put God first is through your devotional life. But by waking up, first thing you do is seeking God. And, and a way and a tool that we have for you right now is a starving book. But we want to give you uh, another tool is the, the, um, the one-year Bible. We're selling those outside as well. But uh, the one-year Bible, if, if maybe you're like some where you wake up in the morning, you want to read, and you just open up your Bible, and you're just like, okay, God, let the wind blow, you know? And you're like, oh, maps today. All right, we'll read about maps, you know? Uh, but, but maybe you want to have like a guide. One-year Bible is a great tool that you can uh, read some Old Testament, read some New Testament, uh, and, and get, get a section of the Bible in you. And if you go through this, you can read it all year long. It's a great tool. We have those on sale outside for you. Uh, but th these are the two things. Because through prayer, you get to talk to God, but, but through devotional life and through the Bible, God talks to you. It, it is a two-winged plane. It's a balanced approach to God. So here's a verse that we looked at last week. It says this, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is God-breathed. It's all from God. 
God is the author of the Bible. It's his autobiography. It's all about God. He spoke it into existence and man held the pen. And it is, say this word with me, it is useful. It's useful. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I love that they use that word useful. You know that the Bible was never intended to be read only? It's not just this book that you can curl up by the fire and get a good read, you know? And it's not, it's not intended to be read only. It's not this kumbaya moment that will make you feel good and make you have a spiritual high. No, it was intended to be used. It was intended to be used in every area of your life. Think about it. The Bible helps you. It helps you when it's used in your marriage. The Bible can be used with your kids. Some of y'all need some help with that. I know I do. Some of y'all need some help with hard decisions. The Bible can be used to make hard decisions. The Bible was intended to be used, so it's our job to put it to use. And it's useful, so we can do anything that God's called us to do. Everything that's in store for you for this year, God has the Bible to help you accomplish a great year. So I say, God, we put you first. 2023, we're putting you first. So here's the message for today. We've had a fun journey so far. If you've missed the first two weeks, I encourage you to go back and watch them, especially last week, especially like that one. But today, here's my goal for today. I want to present a defense for the Bible. I want to help you as you're in your day-to-day conversations to have a defense for the Bible. I'm sure there are many of you in here, a few at least, who have found yourself in a situation where you had to defend the Bible or at the very least defend your faith. Someone may have challenged you. They've challenged your belief system. They've challenged the Bible of which you believe. You may have been challenged in the past, and I don't know how that made you feel. Or for some of you who have never been challenged, the thinking and the thought process of somebody actually challenging you as to what you believe, I wonder how that makes you feel today. It may make you feel uncomfortable and uneasy. I know it can be nerve-wracking to defend your faith. And honestly, it can be a point of fear for many of us. Because many of us, it's, it's a scary thought. It, it's a scary thought that we may not know the answers. It's a scary thought to think that if somebody challenges us, that we won't be able to defend our belief system. So we're, we're scared. We're scared that someone is going to throw out an I got you verse. You ever, you ever, like an atheist is going to approach you, you're going to throw out that I got you verse. Like there's a verse in the Bible that none of us know about, just the atheists, and they're going to stump you with the I got you verse. We're just scared that they're going to pull out something that we've never heard, never seen before, and we're going to be like, wait a second, that's in there, you know, and we're going to look like fools. That's what we're scared of. Now, you may think that you don't know enough about the Bible. You don't know how to defend your faith. But what would you say today if somebody challenged you or the Bible. Today, I want to help you answer this question. It's the title of the message. It's a question I hope to answer today, and it's this. Can the Bible be trusted? Can the Bible be trusted? Let's pray as we jump into God's word today. Father, we thank you for this day. God, thank you for your word. Would you speak to us today in hopes of defending the word of God? In Jesus' name, everybody said, come on, church. Amen. It's a good day. I'm excited about this one. All right. Now, I, I grew up um, doing a lot of street evangelism, 
and uh, especially in high school, did a lot of street evangelism. I was not the guy standing on the corner screaming at you, you're going to hell, okay? Uh, that was not me. But when I was in high school, I got heavily involved in a uh, campus ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ, also known as Crew. Uh, it is a, a very, very amazing ministry. It's been around for many, many years. Uh, Dr. Bill Bright founded this ministry, Campus Crusade for Christ, and they have different arms, uh, ministries that touch into the world. And I was heavily involved in the high school ministry at the time called Student Venture. And the, the premise of Student Venture and the premise of Campus Crusade for Christ is an evangelistic ministry. They teach you how to share your faith. Uh, so I was a freshman in high school when I got introduced to Campus Crusade for Christ. And really, that's, this ministry is really what helped kind of fuel my fire for the Lord. And, and um, they would put us in situations where we would have to defend our faith and where we would have to share our faith. We would go to summer camp. And summer camp was incredible, and, and what they would be doing all week is teaching us how to share our faith. And then the, the, the last day of camp, they would take us in the middle of, of a downtown square, drop us off, and say, good luck. Go share your faith. And they would teach us how to do that, and that thought for some of you might be a little bit intimidating, but that, that was many, many years of my life. Now, uh, as, as we did that, we qu quickly learned that we, we not only needed to have the tools to share our faith... We also knew that we needed to know how to defend our faith. Because as you share your faith, you quickly will come across some non-believers, some atheists, some people who just want to challenge your faith. This is called apologetics. Apologetics is the, the discipline of defending the faith through systematic argumentation. You are, you are trained to defend your faith through systematic argumentation. I, I am like... I, I am a rare breed. I do not like to argue. If you want to argue, I just, it's, it's not in me. I don't like to argue. Some people love it. They make a living out of it. I just don't like to argue. But when it comes to your faith, that's something I will argue about. It's called apologetics. Now, there are so many of, of, of apologists in the world that are so good at this, uh, and, and they kind of lead the way in this. And I've learned from them, but especially starting out, I was so bad at this. I had so much to learn. I remember... I was actually on a mission trip uh, from Texas to California because Californians need Jesus, okay? Uh, it is another country. It was like you're going to a, a third world spiritual country, you know, like <laughs> third world. And so we, we literally went on a mission trip to California, okay? That's where they send Texans. And so um, it's kind of funny because a lot of you are from there, and I went to share, the, share my faith with you. Um, and so we got trained and equipped, and we go, and, and I remember we were in this circle with a lot of people, and of course, because of my personality, they wanted to do some role playing, and so they threw me in the middle, and I was, I was young and kind of new to all this, and I'm like, all right, what do I got to do, you know? And then they said, well, we're going to role play a little bit, get in some scenarios, and I remember an adult stepped in, and I was a, a child, you know, and uh, she totally demolished me. I mean, like, we're role playing, she's trying to equip me and, and help me. But, man, I could not respond. I could not defend. I, I had no defense. And she had these I got you moments, and I just felt like a fool. It, it backfired completely because I didn't want to even do it anymore. I was so discouraged. And I realized I needed a lot of help. But there's this verse that's haunted me my entire life. It's this, 1 Peter 3, 5, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give you a reason for the hope that you have. What? Why are you smiling? Why do you have hope in today's world and in today's economy? 
What, what is different about you? You got to have a reason to explain the smile on your face. So I continued to learn. I continued to grow. And I continued to get in, in heated discussions in the streets with people. And I got to this place because I was doing it early on as a, as a high school student. And it got to this place where I got so good at it, kids would get into discussions with an atheist and they would say, hold that thought. Jared, come over here. And they'd call me over to the hardest arguments, the atheists, and I would have to debate them. And actually, I love it. But, you know, I, that was something that taught me a lot. That as I share my faith, I also need to be able to defend my faith. And, and I know that, that many of you here, the thought of that is, is daunting. It makes you nauseous. Like, like if I just said, okay, church, with that, we're going to go to the Galleria, okay? We're going to defend our faith. Let's go do this, you know? Like, let's all go together. You'd be like, hold up. I'm going to go home. I'll meet you there, and you won't show up. <laughs> but the reality is, maybe we won't do that. I'd like to do that at some point, but we won't do that today. But the reality is you probably will find yourself in a position at some point in your life where you're going to have to give a reason of the hope that you have. You're going to have to defend your faith. Someone's going to challenge the scriptures to you, and you're going to have to defend the scriptures. My question is, what do you say? What do you do in those moments? Today, I want to help you. I want to give you some tools to help you to defend the scriptures and answer this question, can the Bible really be trusted? So here's seven reasons today, church. That's right, seven reasons that you can fully trust the Bible, okay? Seven reasons why the Bible can be fully trusted. Here's the first thing. Each one of these, by the way, Stands on their own, okay? Stands on their own. That's all you really need, but I'm going to give you seven today, all right? So here's the first thing. It is historically accurate. It's historically accurate. For those that say, yes, the Bible has great principles, but did all that stuff really happen? Like, like I, I think the Bible is, is a, a great book, and man, I, there's some truths I can gain from that. Even last week, we talked about how many non-believers even use the biblical truths because they work. Yeah, I, I love it. It's great. There's some good stuff in there, but all that stuff probably didn't happen. I mean, let's talk about it. Noah and the ark, like God actually flooded the earth and saved this man, Noah, and his family. Jonah and the fish, like a man gets eaten by a fish and lives. Daniel in the lion's den, hanging out with some lions that don't consume him. Yeah, great stories, but they probably didn't happen. There's just no physical way that these happened, and I would actually agree with you. There is no physical way. But there is a spiritual way. God intervened. You see, the problem with these arguments is that over time and over the course of history, these events that we read about in Scripture are proven to be accurate. They're proving these things true, especially as we progress in all of our ways of understanding uh, science and different studies. Psalm 33, 4 says this, For the word of the Lord is right, and it's true. The Bible is not only right, but it's true. There's no lie to it. It, it is 100% accurate and 100% truthful. So let's take it through a test. If we're going to say that it's historically accurate, there are three tests that we need to give the events of Scripture. In order for something to be historically accurate, biblical or non-biblical, it has to pass three tests. And we're going to give them to this today. The first test is this. Is there an eyewitness, eyewitness test? There's an eyewitness test. Were the events of Scripture, were there eyewitnesses there for these claims? 
Did you know that most of the Bible was written by people who were actually there and they recorded it along the way? Take the four Gospels, for instance. All four Gospels, written by four separate people, tell the account of Jesus, and they all line up perfectly. The disciples of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, did not sit in a room together and say, hey, Mark, what are you going to write for chapter 5? You know, let's get a theme going here. What do you guys want? What do you want to do? You want to tell that story? They didn't get together and tell the Gospels. This was written separately, and yet they still matched together. Moses, he didn't just hear about the parting of the Red Sea. He was there, and God used him as a part of it. So there were eyewitness accounts, and they recorded what they saw. Here's a second test, the documentation test. Have the records of these accounts been recorded and copied with extreme care and detail? When you think about it, God chose the most meticulous people of all time to record the events of the Bible, the Jewish people. You ever wondered why God chose the Jewish people? Why then and there? It's because the Jewish people and the Jewish scribes had a standard like none other. You see, when the Jews recorded history, they did not record word for word. They recorded letter by letter. They were that meticulous. So when they transcribed, when they wrote the original text of the Bible, when they copied them, they copied them onto a thing called manuscripts, which I'll talk about in a little bit. But this is a copy of the original text. They copied it, not word for word, but letter by letter. And they were so meticulous that if a letter or a word was out of place from the original text, they didn't just keep moving on, they would throw away the whole thing and start all over. So the easiest argument for non-believers to make is how can these scriptures last the test of time? I mean, it's gone through so many people. How can it last the test of time? It's a weak argument, and I'll explain more in a little bit when we talk about these manuscripts. But to show you how amazing the documentation test passes, there's these things called the Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered in the 1940s and 50s. This is copies, manuscripts of the original text of scriptures just discovered in the 40s and 50s, and these copies of the scriptures were a perfect match to the ancient texts. There is documents upon documents, copies upon copies, manuscripts upon manuscripts that prove the documentation test. Here's the third test you got to give it, is the archaeological test. Do you know that today they're still digging and discovering artifacts that prove the Bible to be true? The stuff that they're discovering in modern day and archaeological digs are solidifying the events that we read about in the Bible. Even in the early 1900s, archaeologists discovered the entire um, empire of the Hittite nation. Well, up until this point, they read about the Hittite nation in the scriptures, but there's no ar archaeological facts to prove that there was a Hittite nation. And it's just because they hadn't discovered it yet. And they finally discovered it in the early 1900s, and it proved everything about the Hittite nation recorded in scripture to be true. There is documentation, there is archaeological finds, and there is eyewitness accounts. It is historically accurate. Here's the second thing, if you're taking notes. The Bible can be fully trusted. Here's a test. It's scientifically accurate. Here's a big one for you. God is the God of science. This is, this is God's thing. I think sometimes the scientific debate comes up and we get scared as if a dude named science wrote this, you know, like it's his idea. No, God is the God of science. 
Because God's the God of the universe, God created science. His laws reign because he's the God of the universe, and his thoughts and truths about science is what reigns, okay? God created our bodies, how they function. He created the stars and the planets. He created atoms and protons and neutrons. He created it all. That's science. God created it. This is a big one that people like to use to prove that the Bible is false. Science. Let me try it again. Science. It's like this numinous, scary word here. Okay, here's what I say to this. Science is always evolving and always changing, but the truth, the word of God never changes. Let me prove it to you. Do you remember when they said that smoking was good for you? <laughs> there was a time in a day when your grandparents were told it was good to smoke, okay? I remember because my grandma told me that. And now, if you see a pack of cigarettes, it says, this will kill you. Like, literally, they have to put it on there. There was a time, a day, when they said that lead was not harmful for you. There was a time and day that they said pesticides were not harmful, harmful for you. I watched a documentary where they were spraying pesticide in kids' faces. Like, it was okay. Well, now we know these things are extremely harmful. There was a time when they said that you only had to have one booster. I'm going to get in so much trouble here. <laughs> I don't even know how many boosters were on. So bad. But it's true. It's changing. They're changing the goal, the goal post, right? Here's another example. <laughs> so bad. Uh, here's another example. The, the, the book that you used in your sixth grade science class, I promise you, is not the book they're using today. Because science is always evolving, always changing. Psalm 148.5 through 6 says this, Let every created thing give praise to the Lord. For he issued his command, and they came into being. He set them in place forever and ever. His decree will never be revoked. Science changes, but you've never seen somebody come out and say, oh, we made an error in Scripture. We're going we're gonna to modify. Everybody turn to page uh, 243. We're going to omit this one word here. You've never seen anybody change Scripture, yet they always constantly change science. You know, the Bible's not a science book, but it is historically accurate when it comes to science? It is accurate scientifically. So I had a thought when I was writing this message. I, I, I find it interesting that not only is the, the Bible true when it comes to what it says about science, it's also what the Bible doesn't say about science. Think about this. There are things not written in the Bible about science. I'm going to help you today with this thought to help you to debate the scripture is true. Well, during Bible days, there were scientific concepts that were widely known and widely accepted, yet the Bible chose not to talk about them. We'll give you some examples. During Bible days, when the Bible was written, here was a concept that they all believed, that the earth was flat. You've heard that argument before. Did you know that everyone thought the earth was flat up until 1492? Columbus sailed that ocean blue, right? He came in and he discovered that it's not flat. 500 years ago, we finally discovered that the earth was not flat. Indeed, it was round. Well, only if they would have read the Bible. Way before this, Isaiah 40, said, God sits above the circle of the earth. The people below seem like grasshoppers to him. Circle. The word here is actually sphere, which is where we get the word globe. <laughs> well, wh why did they write that in a time that that was not at all the idea of 
the world, the world was flat at the time. Well, could it be that man didn't write this but God? Here's another one. During the day, Bible day, they thought that the earth had to be held up. The Greeks believed in Atlas. Kind of looks like me, like spitting image, like this. He held, he held the world. Why are you laughing? He held the world like this, right? With his manly physique and everything, right? So the, the Greeks literally believed that's how the world was held up by this, held up by this man named Atlas. Get this one. Bible days. This is what the Hindus believed in Bible days. That the earth stood on the back of an elephant, which stood on the back of a sea turtle, which stood on the back of a serpent that swam throughout the sea. No joke, that's what they believed. The Egyptians, who were brilliant, known for their architecture and their smarts, they believed that the earth stood on five pillars. Five pillars. So again, we're talking about what the Bible doesn't say. Think about Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. He was raised as an Egyptian, grandson to Pharaoh, went to Egyptian schools, where he was taught that the earth was held by five pillars, yet that concept never finds itself in the Bible. Instead, the oldest book in the Bible, chronologically, if you look at that, Job is the oldest book in the Bible. The oldest book in the Bible says this, Job 26, 7, God stretches the northern sky over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Well, why was that written back then when that was not the idea of the world and culture? Could it be that God wrote this, not man? Science may shift and adjust, but the word of God does not. It never changes. It's consistent. It's perfect. Psalm 12, 6 says, all the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. It is flawless. It's perfect. There are no errors. Okay, so it's historically accurate. It's scientifically accurate. Now let's have some fun. It is prophetically accurate. This might be the biggest and most important point right here. Now this one would be a big risk for mankind, for humans, if man wrote it. If the Bible was written by man, this would be a big risk. For a man to prophesy or foretell the future the chances of a prophecy, man-made prophecy actually coming true is very, very small. Because here's the deal. If one prophecy of the scriptures ever was proven to be false, you'd have to throw the entire thing away. That's how big of a risk the prophecies are. And you ready for this? There are over a thousand prophecies in the Bible. That's a big risk for man. If, if man wrote this, because the chances of a prophecy actually coming true are very, very small. There are over 300 prophecies of Jesus. Out of the 1,000, there are over 300 pertaining to Jesus alone. And this was all given before Jesus. There was no Jesus in human flesh yet. The last prophecy we were given that was given about Jesus was 400 years before Jesus even walked the earth. Think about that. No Jesus at all, yet they're prophesying about Jesus. And yet, they gave detailed prophecies about the life and ministry of Jesus before he walked the earth. They prophesied where he would be born and how he would be born. They prophesied how he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Think about this one. David prophesied the crucifixion of Jesus before crucifixion was a way of death. There was no crucifixion. And even to take it a step further, he said that no bone on his body would be broken. 
And when they started to crucify people, to speed up the death, the guard would go and break their legs and they would, they would, it, would, it, it would expedite their death process. And for whatever reason, the guard did not break the legs of Jesus. No bone was broken. These prophecies were actually fulfilled. So how could these people prophesy? And it happened exactly how they prophesied it would happen years and years ago. Well, it could only have been God. To give you an illustration, uh, there was a man named Dr. Peter Stoner who did an entire study entitled Science Speaks. Science Speaks. He gathered a team of 600 probability experts. Now, we all, probability is the chances of something actually coming true. So, for example, if you take a bucket and you stick uh, nine blue tennis balls in a bucket and one red tennis ball in that bucket, and I say, Pastor D, come grab a, a ball, what are the chances he's going to grab the, the, the red ball? That's one in ten, right? That's easy math for us, one in ten. So, so they did a study. Probability experts, they did the study. They said this, what is the probability of any of these thousand prophecies ever coming true? So they did a study. Here, here's what they discovered. One person fulfilling eight. So Jesus had 300 prophecies about him. So Jesus fulfilling eight prophecies, the chances, the probabilities of that actually coming true is one in 10 to the 17th power. It's this number right here. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> it's a lot of zeros. That's all I know. Thank you, doctor. See, 100 so, so it's a lot. It's a lot. Because you're probably like me and you're not a doctor, we have no idea what that number is, right? So, so let me, let me they, they gave this illustration, but this is what that number is. If you were looking for a place to store um, silver dollar coins, okay, to be that, that, that many silver dollar coins, what it would take is you would fill the entire state of Texas two feet deep with silver, silver dollar coins. That's that number, okay? That's how many? Two feet deep, the, the second largest state, the best state, but the second largest, okay? Just remember that. Um, we have the Alamo. And so it's like, you know, two feet deep. And then you take Pastor D, you say, hey, man, I'm going to fly you up in a helicopter. I've marked one of those coins, and I drop them in El Paso, and I say, find the one coin. You have no idea where it is. You're blindfolded. Drop them. Stick your hand down. Grab it. That's the chances. That's that number. That's that number. One in 10 to the 17th power is that number. Now, here's some more. One person fulfilling 16 prophecies, okay, is 1 in 10 to the 45th power. Again, the number grows large. Who knows? Okay, it's a crazy number. One more. One person fulfilling 48 prophecies is 1 in 10 to the 157th power. You can't even describe that number. The, the point is this. It is impossible for one man to fulfill a man-made prophecy, much less Jesus himself fulfilling 300 prophecies about him. Could it be? 2 Timothy 1.21 says this. Could it be? For prophecy never had its origin on the human will. It's not written by man. It's not man's idea. But prophets, through human, spoke from God. That's where it's coming from as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Then Jesus said this, Matthew 26, 56, but this is all happening to fulfill the words of the prophets as recorded in the scriptures. We talked about this last week, but these prophecies are about Jesus. 
There's so many prophecies that have been already been fulfilled, and there are so many that have yet to be fulfilled. And this is what I want you to catch. We're, we're running at 100% accuracy right, right now for, for fulfilling prophecies that are written in Scripture. There are still many to happen. I just want you to be on the right side of those prophecies. Because there's going to come a day that these prophecies will be fulfilled, the remainder of them, the remainder of the thousand. Here's an example. Revelation 22.6 says, The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, set, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. So, so here's the conclusion I make on this point. We'll move on. And this is something I've shared with many people. It takes more faith to believe the prophecies of the Bible are coincidence than it does to believe that God planned them. It takes more faith for you to be an unbeliever today than it does for you to be a believer. I'm telling you today, it is prophetically accurate. Here's the fourth thing, another favorite one of this. It is thematically accurate. There is a theme running through scripture that never changes. And we mentioned this last week, but the Bible is written by over 40 people over a period of 1,600 years, 12 nations, three continents, yet they all wrote pertaining to the same theme without, without deviating that theme at all. Jesus even affirms this in Luke 24, 27, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, like the entire scripture, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And we put a map up here last week saying that the whole Bible's all about Jesus. He's at the center and he's at the top. So, so my encouragement to you is when you read the scriptures, find Jesus because it's all about him. But yet, in my arguments, this is when people want to tell me that the Bible's full of errors. I hear that probably more than any other discussion, is that it's full of errors. And how do we know what we're reading today is actually what was recorded in Bible days. Well, let me help you with that one. Within 50 years of the time that the Bible, the, the original text was written, within 50 years, it would be copied, and these copies were called manuscripts. Manuscript is this. It's a hand-copied document of the original text. This right here is what separates us from any other book and any other religion in the entire world. Take the New Testament alone, for example. There are over 24,000 manuscripts in existence today of the New Testament. So, so just to put that number to use and kind of show you the importance of this, let me show you how the Bible compares to one of the most um, manuscript books of all time, Homer's Iliad. Y'all remember reading that one in school? Or maybe last week, I don't know, maybe you're into reading. Okay. Homer's Iliad has 643 manuscripts. It's the second most manuscripted book in existence. The Bible is number one. The New Testament alone has 24,000 manuscripts. Look at the difference of that. People want to say that there are errors and it's not copied correctly. And here's what I've learned when I'm talking to people. They have no idea what they're saying. <laughs> they've heard it. They've heard these arguments used before and they've just never encountered anybody who had any knowledge any believer with any knowledge who can refute it. That's just, it's just a lie. There's no, there's no weight to that argument. And get this, these manuscripts are not over 99% accurate to the original text. So if you took 24,000 
piece of paper, each paper representing a copy of the original text. If you compared all of those to the original text, there's, there's an over 99% accuracy rate. There's, to say that there's no, there's no book that comes anywhere close to the accuracy of the Bible. All right, your Bible can be trusted. It's thematically accurate. Here's the fifth one. And this might be the most important one. It is trusted by Jesus. This is all I need right here. It's trusted by Jesus. But what I've encountered is funny because how many people are quick to accept the teachings of Jesus and refute the rest of Scripture. Like they just believe in Jesus. They believe in the life and ministry of Jesus, but they're quick to refuse the rest of Scripture. But here's the reality. You cannot trust Jesus without trusting the rest of the Bible. You can't do it. Because Jesus trusted the rest of the Bible. And if you're going to trust Jesus, and you need to trust what he trusted, and he trusted the Bible. Matthew 5.18 says this, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter of the Bible, not the least stroke of a pen of the word of God, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. It's all going to be accomplished. It's all going to be fulfilled. See, Jesus trusted the entire Bible, and so do we. Now, it's okay if you don't understand it. It's okay if you don't get it all. I've said it before. It's because you're not God. <laughs> it hadn't been revealed to you yet. But here's my advice. Don't wait for the Bible to change so you can understand it because it's never going to change. We need to change so that we can understand the Bible because here's what I know to be true, and this might rub some feathers, but I'm okay with that. If you believe what you like in the Bible but don't believe what you don't like, it's not the Bible you trust but yourself. Just let that one marinate for a second. If you believe what you like in the Bible, but don't believe what you don't like, it's not the Bible you trust, but it's yourself. You are the ultimate authority now. This is where we get statements like, oh, it's just my truth. <laughs> That's my peace. I promise you, the Bible is far more reliable than your truth and your peace. You just came up with that. The Bible has stood the test of time. I don't want to just trust my truth. I want to trust God's truth, his word. Jesus trusted it, and so can we. End of story. So Jesus trusted it. Here's the sixth one. It survived all attacks. It survived all attacks. I think we can stop right here and ask the question, well, why was the Bible ever attacked in the first place? I mean, have you noticed the attack on Christianity today in our culture? Some of you feel that attack. You've heard the attack. Well, why are not other religions and other schools of thought attacked as much and as harshly as the Christian faith is attacked? I, I mean, we shared this before, but a, a, a student, one of our students in our church, wanted to read a Bible story at church, was told to read a Bible story, took his Bible up there, and the teacher said, you can't read that story here, and took it away. Wouldn't let him read that story. I wonder if he brought a story from the Quran, would he be able to read it? I, brought, I bet he would be. I mean, we are, the Bible and Christians are being attacked. Well, why? Could it be that the words in the Bible are true? They're helpful. They can, they can save your life, and the enemy knows it. And he wants to keep you from hearing it. So he's going to try all that he can to eliminate it and challenge it in our, in our culture. He knows that if you can just allow a seed of doubt creep in, you might have the thought, well, maybe it's not true at all. 
Actually, the Bible is the most despised, derided, denied, disputed, dissected, debated, outlawed, and destroyed book of all time. And it still stands. You can say what you want, but no one has ever been able to stop the word of God from moving forward. 1 Peter 1, 24 through 25 says, The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. See, the enemy and the culture will try to do all that they can do to outlaw and dismiss the Bible. But don't be afraid. This is not the first attack on the word of God, and it won't be the last. But remember, it will endure forever. So we have to ask ourselves this question. Now, this is the application part of this point. What's going to be the final authority in my life? The word or the world? At the end of the day, there's an authority to your life. What is going to be the final authority? The word of the world. I'm asking you to resolve that inside of yourself. Here's my resolution. I'm not changing for culture. I don't care what they want me to believe. I don't care how they expect me to behave or what they want me to say. I stand on the word of God as the authority, the final authority of my life. I want you to have that same resolve. Because here's what I know, and I feel like we've been saying this for years. It's only getting worse. It's not getting any better. I do know that. It's only getting worse. We're hearing more and more on the news. And I believe there's going to be a day coming that we all will be challenged. And we have to stand strong together. And we will survive by clinging hold of the thing that survived the test of time, the word of God. Okay, the final point, before we throw it up there. I want to give you the last reason. And it's one that can be tested. The test is this. Give us a year of your life. We've said this before. It's a plea. It's, a, it's an invitation. Give us, give Zeo, give the church, give God a year of your life. Go all in. Read your Bible. Pray. Come to everything we offer. Come to 21 days of prayer. We have a marriage conference coming up. Come to the marriage conference. We have men's and women's events coming up. Come to those. Give, serve. Go all in with God. Give us a year of your life. And watch what God will do because here's what I know to be true. Point seven. It has transforming power. It works. It has the power to change. It's the only book that is able to live in the physical realm and the spiritual realm at the same time. The Bible will change your life. And the truth of God's word will help direct and guide you in this life. John 8, 31 through 32 says this. Jesus says this. If you hold on to my teachings, you are really my disciples. And when you do that, you're going to know the truth, and the truth will be, it'll set you free. I'm challenging you this year. You're going to grab hold of anything. Grab hold to the Word of God. It will not fail you. It will not let you down. It's proven the test of time. And when you do, you're a true disciple of Jesus. You know, true disciples are not those who claim to be Christians in name only. They're the ones who actually do the teachings of Jesus who believe the teachings of Jesus and do what it says. That's kind of what we've been trying to do in this series is teach you the word of God. So you'll want to do the word of God. 
and become a true disciple. And I know that so many of you are battling with some areas of, that you need freedom in. You need some, some freedom in your life. Maybe it's a sin, it's an addiction, it's a health issue. It's a way of thinking. And you've tried so many different things. According to this verse, the truth will set you free. I can stand here today with full confidence and declare that the Bible can be trusted. It will stand the test, it has stood the test of time and it has transforming power to change your life. Would you pray with me? I just wanna give you a moment to ask the Holy Spirit what he's saying to you through this message. One word from God can change everything. Just take a moment and just be quiet before the Lord and say, God, what do you want to say to me through this message? What am I supposed to learn? What am I supposed to walk away with? What do you want to say to me in this moment? Just take a moment and see what he says to you. Father, we thank you that, that you win in the end. That there will come a day that Bibles will be outlawed. Being a Christian will get you killed. And God, we have this gift, this tool in our hands that will help us in this life. Lord, may we not take it for granted. I gotta thank you that we're not on the losing team. We know how this thing will end. Every prophecy has come true and there's still more to come true. We know that they will come true. So Lord, help us to love your word and get it in our hearts. We thank you for this gift. And I want to close like I always do. If you've never prayed a prayer to receive Jesus, to begin a relationship with Jesus, I just want to lead you in a prayer today. Maybe you've been far from God for a long time. Maybe you'd like to come back to God. Maybe you've never just prayed a prayer to Jesus and said, God, I want to follow you. I want to live for you. I want to be a Christian. I want to lead you in a prayer today. It's not about the prayer. It's about beginning a lifestyle, a relationship with Jesus. But it begins by confession, the Bible says, Romans 10, 9. So right where you're at, I just want to lead you in a simple prayer today. If that's you, just pray this to God. Say, God, I'm coming to you today. Today, I want to give you my life. I've been running from you. I've been ignoring you. Today, God, I'm coming to you. I want to be a Christian. I choose to follow you today. Thank you for your death on the cross in my place for my sin. And today I believe in you. I choose to follow you the rest of my life. Change me and make me new. In 
In Jesus' name, amen. Quick clap and celebrate those who prayed that prayer.